0: Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning, we are in a sermon series entitled Purpose Built, and today, specifically, we want to look at how integral, uh, how foundational it is that we build our lives on Christ. Now, there's a few reasons why we're doing this sermon series. Uh, we, we want to understand, I think, as, as a church here at CVL, and then even just as, as individual Christians, what are the things, and sometimes the unseen things, that uh, create the form and the structure for our lives for how we interact with people in our lives, and how we treat those around us. There's a word for that, or there's a, um, um, yeah, a word for that. We call that culture. And this is probably the best definition. I stole this from someone else, um, but this is one of the best definitions I've ever heard of culture. Uh, It is the thought, the shared thought habits that frame the way people behave and work together. And there's good reason for us to consider that as a congregation, right? Because we want to know what are the things that, that create the frame and the structure for what we do here at CVL and, and how you live your life as you leave this building. Um, and again, that, that, that kind of idea of framework, um, a lot of you have seen how this building went up and if you remember, oh, I don't know, what was it, 14, 15 months ago? Um, There was nothing here but steel beams and trusses. Do you remember that day? There was a day when this thing was nothing more than a skeleton of a building. And on some level, it's a little bit hard to imagine what it can look like at some point. But that skeleton of a building is remarkably important. And it's important in your lives as well. So when we talk about framing We talk about um, the hidden structure that is behind these walls that creates a space where things happen, right? So we had plans in place and there was structure that was put in place so that you could be here now and worship in this room, right? There's different structure for the bathrooms. There's different structure for carbon kids on the other side. But the, the framing, the unseen framing creates what you are going to do in that room, Well, there's some truth to that for us uh, as believers and in our church as well. And so I think it's good practice for us, in a sense, to strip it all down and say, what's the framework on which we build? What's the framework upon which our church exists? Because it has incredible amounts of impact going forward for what we do, how we treat people, how we reach out to the lost in our community and everything that comes afterwards. So that's why we're in this sermon series entitled Purpose Built. And we're going to look at lots of different things, um, but I would argue probably these first two are the most foundational for our church and for our lives as believers. Last week, if you were here, uh, Pastor Burkholz was our guest preacher, and he did a so-so job. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not here today, so I can say that. No, he did great. So Pastor Burkoltz is a great preacher, um, but he talked about the importance of, of uh, building on Scripture, Right? And you can make the argument if, if a congregation, if a, if a Christian doesn't build on, on the truths of God's inspired word, then, then sooner or later, everything goes off course. So he talked about the importance of scripture, of God's inspired word to us. Today, I would say it was is equally important because at the heart of scripture, all of scripture from Old Testament to New Testament is one single person. His name is Jesus Christ. Whether he was the promised Messiah to come in the Old Testament or the realization that he has come as we look back from a New Testament era, at the center of it all, we sometimes call this the red line of the gospel, at the center of the entire book of the Bible is Jesus Christ and God's redemptive work in him. And so that's what we want to look at here today. We're going to talk about how important, how pivotal, pivotal uh, Christ is for absolutely everything we do. Uh, I've moved around a little bit. Some of you know that. Uh, I've lived in a lot of different places, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Toronto, grew up in Grand Junction, anyway, back out here. And those of you that have moved quite a bit in your life or at all, you know one of the hardest things to do when you get to a new place, to a new town, is to kind of figure out what services you can get access to. So if you're, if you're a mom with kids and stuff, or at least for my wife took care of that side for me, um, she would try to find a pediatrician, right? So you, you want to try to find a good pediatrician because um, about two days after you move, your kid's already got a runny nose and a sore throat and a cough and all this. So you got you to gotta find a good pediatrician, right? Um, so almost every time you move to a new place, one of the first things you do is, is try to find some of the, the hidden framework of your community. That's what we're talking about a little bit today, isn't it? And it's always, not always so apparent, is it? When you move to a new town, uh, you can just go to McDonald's and you're like, I already know where McDonald's In fact, that's maybe the first place that you go. Say, okay, I know, at least I know what I'm going to get at McDonald's. But the truth is, the longer you're in a place, the more you find um, sometimes the hidden unseen gems of your community. You find other restaurants, things like that. Well, whenever I move to a new place, I would kind of ask, I, I, had the, I was fortunate that I was a pastor, so I get to ask all of you as a congregation um, where I can find certain things. And every time I'd ask somebody, they'd be like, oh, pastor, I got a guy for you. And it was almost like, a, it, was almost like it was like secret. I'm like, well, I don't think it's secret, but like, oh, yeah, I got a guy for you, like, right? So, and, and so some of you maybe run into that, right? Where you say, um, oh, yeah, I got a guy for that. And and the the power of of personal recommendations and sharing individual people with one another is pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, And so you you move to a place and you're probably already thinking of someone in your head. Yeah, you guys have guys too, don't you? You have like go-to people, right? Okay, so I got a few. Um, Until he moved to Nebraska recently, I had a guy. His name was Sean and he was a handyman. So like furnace breaks down, stuff like that. I got a guy. His name's Sean. Unfortunately, he's in Omaha, Nebraska now. So, so I guess I'm looking for a new guy if anyone's got one, right? Okay. Um, um, cars. Need to get your car worked on? I got a guy for you. Steve in car works. He's actually uh, in Longmont. He's really good. Treat you right. So these are legitimate people, by the way. Um, Steve's awesome, right? And now, lest you think that, I, that, that I'm, I'm, I just got guys, I got gals too. You know that, right? So um, I, you would need a haircut, you need styling. I got a gal for that. Her name's Mary. She makes it seem as though I haven't lost all of my hair yet. So she's very, she's really good. She's very strategic in that, in that regard, right? Um, you need some welding. I got a guy for that. He's over in Erie, right? Here's the wonderful thing. I think all of us probably have different guys or gals for specific tasks. But you probably already know where this is going. Today, we're gonna see that we have a guy that's far greater than welding, construction, or even hairstyling. Today, by the end of this, without a shadow of a doubt, we are able to say, you are able to say, I got a guy for eternity, right? His name is Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're gonna look at today. That's simply gonna be our theme um, when we talk about being purpose-built. It's gonna be on Christ. Now, our text for today... Uh, you're welcome to follow along with me if you would like. Um, I'm going to set up a little bit of the context, context of what we're going through here today. Um, and this is where it starts. So, uh, we're in the book of Acts. So, uh, in the New Testament, the book of Acts is kind of the, the sister book to, uh, to Luke's gospel. So, the book of Acts is the history of the early Christian church. It's actually one of my favorite books because on some level, I tend to probably be maybe om- almost too practical at times and the book of Acts simply tells us, shows us what those early Christians were doing. And so we talk about being purpose-built and the framing for how we do things. The book of Acts kind of shows us what they felt was important. Now, Acts chapter 2, we had a really remarkable event called Pentecost. Pentecost. So if you remember the story of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that's what happened. Pentecost comes, the uh, Holy Spirit poured out on the disciples. They're able to speak the gospel clearly to people from all over the Mediterranean, tons and tons of different languages. They're able to clearly speak about who Jesus Christ is as their Lord and Savior. Uh, 3,000 people come to faith on Pentecost. And so that happens in Acts chapter 2. But everybody doesn't just immediately kind of scatter to the winds. In fact, the apostles stick around for a little bit. So Acts chapter 3, Peter, John, and many of the apostles are still hanging out in Jerusalem. Now, um, thinking through your biblical history here just a little bit, um, we've got Pentecost and people are coming to faith and the news about Jesus' death and his resurrection is starting to spread, um, but the serious, serious persecution hasn't quite started yet. So there's, there's this little bit of a, a, a breath of, of fresh air. Pentecost is one where people are coming to faith, right? And um, Acts chapter three, that's happening as well. So um, Peter and John are continuing to preach and teach about Jesus and they're doing it, lo and behold, where? At the temple. Because you wanna know what Peter and John and all the apostles did on a regular basis? They did what you're doing today. <laughs> They went to church, right? So this was their pattern. This was who they were. This was the framework of their life. They had made it a habit um, to go to church to worship their God and in this instance to share Jesus Christ with those who are listening. So chapter 2 is Pentecost. Chapter 3 is Peter and John simply going to the temple and and preaching about Jesus. Now, on their way to the temple, they pass a man, a cripple, um, at what they call the beautiful gate, one of the entry points to uh, to the temple area. And um, he's crippled, he's there almost every day of his life. Um, uh, Old Testament Israel, especially a time during Jesus, there wasn't uh, um, a welfare net, there wasn't any kind of social structure for those that didn't have any way to help themselves. And so, if you were crippled, if you were blind, if you were in need of help, you would go to the main gates, specifically at the temple, and that was your job. So every morning you would go there. Sometimes people would actually carry their friends to the gate, set you there, and you would beg for money or food as pilgrims came and left from the temple. That was his life, right? Acts chapter three. Well, Peter and John are headed to church and they pass this cripple at that gate. And these are the words that Peter says to him. He says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. This is probably the best part of this one. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. That's a pretty good day, isn't it? For him and for Peter and John. That's the event that immediately precipitated our text here today in chapter four. And so what we're gonna see is that some of these leaders from the temple come and they say, why would you do something like this? Why would, in, in whose name did you do something like this? Now for us, and I would argue for the man who was jumping and running and praising God, it was absolutely unadulterated, pure joy but for many, in our text today, it was the opposite of that. It was a reason to try to dig deeper. It was a reason to try to put Peter, John, and any followers of Christ on trial. Okay? So that's where we're going to begin uh, in our text here today. Um, th- this is actually the, takes place just after they had done that. So, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. A couple things right off the bat that's happening here in our text. There are ripples of effect of Jesus' death and his resurrection. You can see in the picture here that there are ripples. You don't exactly see the event that caused them, but what's a pretty good assumption? <laughs> Something went in the water. Right? Is that a safe assumption? You see ripples on the water. You say, okay, something went in the water, or even maybe it was wind blowing it. But you can see ripples of effect from something that happened. Real early in this text, that's what, kind of what we're looking at. And we're looking at ripples that are, are in a couple different ways. Okay? And they, they spread out in different ways. The first is, is that there are enemies of this message of Jesus Christ. We see that already here. It's going to crank up even more so to the point where persecution is going to spread Christians throughout the Mediterranean world, right? There will be be hundreds of thousands of Christians that will give their lives, that will shed their blood because they were nothing more than followers of Christ. You are seeing the very beginning ripples of that right here in our text. And what's really fascinating is as we read this text, it's interesting who is opposed to the preaching of Jesus that Peter and John were speaking it's actually a really remarkable list so uh, you heard me read that specifically right um, um, and actually I did, probably didn't read that part but the priests captain of the temple and Sadducees and then a little later on rulers and elders of the people now suffice it to say th- this is what you take away from that these were very disparate groups that had come in opposition of what Peter and John were preaching and what I mean by that is that these were not people that generally got along with one another. So these were Romans and these were Jews, uh, these were, were Pharisees and they were Sadducees. So in normal everyday life, these groups that were unified in their opposition of Peter and John and specifically of Jesus, in normal everyday life, they did not hang out all that much. These were Republicans and Democrats united against a single movement, right? This was, was everyone from within society. This was rich. This was poor. Uh, these were rulers. These were slaves, right? Uh, so uh, in a sense, there was this cross-section of pushback against Peter and John and their message about Jesus Christ. So that's the first kind of ripple of effect that we see here. When we share Christ... When you share Christ in your life, do not be surprised that there is pushback. And it'll come from a lot of different places, right? A broad swath of it, right? But do not be surprised that there's pushback. There will be for us, there was for Peter and John. Now, you're thinking that's kind of a downer, right? So I'm not ending the sermon right there. Because our text also says something else happened, right? And at the end of this here says, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So we're talking about ripples of effect. So there was some pushback, but notice what else was happening. By tenfold, people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you share Christ in your life and when we share Christ in our community, there absolutely will be pushback. Just a part of it. In fact, if, on some level, if you don't feel any pushback Being a follower of Christ, you may need to step back and say, am I truly following Christ, right? There will be pushback. But here's the real beautiful thing about this text. God's word and Christ and his grace are far more powerful than any of the pushback that we'll feel. We talk about Pentecost, and that one I think, rightfully so, is a a big day. 3,000 come to faith. This almost seems like a kind of a a throwaway end of the phrase sentence, but another 5,000 Come to faith. And usually we count these as, as households, right? So let's multiply that by three or by four. Now, can you imagine those that came to interrogate Peter and John, say, why in the world are you healing people that are crippled? Now he's dancing around and stuff, right? We can't have this dancing and jumping around here, right? So that's, what they, that's the premise. They come to him and say, why are you doing this? Whose name are you doing this? They're, they're, they're united in their pushback And then look at the impact that it has. Peter and John's testimony about Christ changed hearts, changed lives, and did it exponentially. Now, what exactly was that message? Because it wasn't the power of Peter and John's preaching. It wasn't because they were so remarkably charismatic. Peter actually deflects all of that and points it specifically to Christ. Let's go on in our text. Oops. Uh, they say this, By what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked about how he was healed. You get a little sense that Peter was maybe sticking it back in their face. Like, If we're being called to account for healing this guy, right? throwing it back at him, then know this and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which, by which we must be saved. Is there a lot of um, indirectness in Peter's message? No. No. Does he, does, he, does he kind of nibble around at the edges before he ends up getting to Christ? No. Peter points exactly to the, the purpose and to our salvation and to Christ. Right? Salvation is found in no other name other than Jesus Christ. Will that message receive some pushback? Yeah. But that's the most powerful message that our world has ever seen you wouldn't be here this morning if that wasn't true, right? Billions of believers whose lives have been changed wouldn't be there unless this was true. Now, here's kind of a fascinating thing. I read an article this last week. Uh, they did a poll of believers, those who, so us, right, that would call ourselves believers and followers of Christ. So they did a poll recently um, about Christ and the necessity of Jesus as our path to eternity. And 70% of those respondents, these are confessing Christians, said that Jesus was just one way to heaven and not the only way. Okay? So 70% of confessing Christians said Jesus was just one path To heaven but not the only way right so if you are earnest enough as a Muslim as a Hindu uh, even as a secular humanist or an atheist that there is a possibility that you're going to be able to make your way to eternity okay now I throw that stat out there and it's probably landing on each of you a little bit differently right so for maybe for some of us that's a, a rather alarming statistic Especially when we read the words of Peter in our text here today. But there's another side to it too. And some of you are, are maybe um, newer on your faith journey and have struggled with that very question. Or you, at the very least, you have family members and friends who will struggle with that very qu- question, right? Is Jesus Christ the only path to eternity? If you've ever struggled with that, or if you're struggling with that here today, you're actually not alone. Right? That's a pretty common thing. When people come talk to me as a pastor, that's a pretty common struggle to, to kind of wrestle with, right? that Jesus is the only path to eternity. And I, I think it's a struggle for us in a few different ways. Number one, it's a little bit emotionally hard to, to think through, isn't it? Um, I would argue it is, it is emotionally a little bit easier for us to think and to say that almost every path leads to heaven and leads to eternity. Because we have family and we have friends that don't know Jesus, right? People that we love dearly. And so I think at least on an emotional level, we understand that. I understand that. Like, this is a hard thing for us. And so I think that's the side of it. But here's the other problem with it. On some level, it's, it's intellectually dishonest. Um, or at least obscured a little bit. Because when we hear Peter's words, he's unequivocable in his pronouncement that Christ is the only path to eternity. Okay. So then what do we do with that? Well, here's a few things. Number one, here's what we got to understand. Um, Every religion, every philosophy, every pattern of living is exclusionary of every other religion, philosophy, and pattern of living. You know what I mean by that? So every, every way that people choose to live their lives, right, um, is exclusionary of other ways that people live their lives. Now, uh, I was a pastor in Toronto and we were in inner city Toronto called Scarborough and, and we had a lot of interaction, a lot of our neighbors, a lot of our community members um, were Muslims, right? So um, we, we had the message of Jesus Christ and we had the message of Muhammad and submission to Allah. We're kind of, that That was what we taught and what we Dealt with on a daily basis, um, and what a really fascinating thing happened. Um, the local imam, I got to know him, and he kind of liked me because he'd come to me, and he had asked me questions about Christianity, and I didn't just give him non-answers. I didn't just say, "Yeah, it, there's really actually no difference. It's no big deal. We're all climbing the same mountain. We're all going to get there." That's what he expected, actually, sadly, to hear. But I didn't tell him that. I said, no. I said, our only path to eternity is through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross and what he's done for us. And lo and behold, he would come back to me and have that discussion over and over and over again. He liked how honest and frank I was with him about Jesus Christ. But you want to know the reverse side? He was just as honest and frank with me. He said, I do not believe in Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior. I think he was a prophet, but that was it. Path to eternity does not run through Christ and his cross and his sacrifice. It runs through Muhammad and your submission to him. Now, at least the two of us were being intellectually honest with one another, but it highlights and maybe illustrates that reality that every belief, philosophy, um, or non-belief is exclusionary of another belief, okay? So you, on some level, we can level that playing field. So then the question we get to ask ourselves is, then what makes Christianity unique? There's a guy maybe you've heard of, C.S. Lewis, uh, who answered that question once. He had to answer that question once. And uh, um, um, he answered that with the concept of grace that makes Christianity unique. And actually in that conversation, they asked him a little bit more. They said this, this concept of, of, of um, universal truths and things leading to heaven. He said, this is how I like to think of it. Two plus two (coughs) equals four, right? And so he said, two plus two equals four, because that's the answer. And you could do this equation and go two plus two equals five, and you're pretty close. But will your teacher mark it wrong? Yeah, they still will. And he said two plus two equals five is closer than two plus two equals 32, <laughs> relatively speaking. But his point was, it's still not the right answer. And so C.S. Lewis' answer was Christ and his grace. His argument was that is the lone thing that sets Christianity apart from all other religions, philosophies, and paths to eternity. Undeserved love, laid down for you on the cross so that your sins would be washed clean. And that's why Peter could speak the words that he did. There's no salvation found in any other name other than Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ gave his life for you. Willingly outstretched his arms, let his blood be shed, died on the cross so that your sins would be washed absolutely clean. It is not by submission to a deity It is not by how hard you work. It's not by the music you listen to um, or how many church services you show up at. It's not through any work of ourselves that heaven is open and that salvation is there. It's purely through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. His life, his death, his undeserved love for you. Poured out for you. And so when we wrestle with that concept of Jesus being Our entry into eternal life. What we get to fall back on is one of the most beautiful things that we could ever find. And it's that concept of grace and undeserved love. On some level, I think it probably felt a little bit like when the rulers came to Peter and John and said, Why in the world are you making guys dance and healing them? Same thing is true for us, isn't it? We get to fall back on something that is absolutely beautiful and true. It's the grace of Christ. Their sins are washed away in him. Right? Now what does that lead to for you and I? Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been, had been with Jesus. I think it leads to that. For us as a church and for us as individuals. It leads to astonishing courage and you notice almost a a, a kind of a backhanded insult that they throw at them ordinary unschooled men right ordinary unschooled men who had just healed a cripple (laughs) at your temple gates ordinary unschooled men whose message had just converted about 5,000 more people ordinary unschooled men who would go out into the Mediterranean world who would give their lives and the world would never look the same. <laughs> if that's ordinary, sign me up, right? But again, it wasn't the strength or the charisma of Peter and John. It was the message and the news of Jesus Christ that gave them courage and changed their world. This is another quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. He goes on in that quote to talk a little bit. He actually connects it to Pontius Pilate. So sometimes we read Jesus' death and resurrection and Pontius Pilate, we almost want to feel sorry for him a little bit. Like, boy, he just was kind of stuck. Like, he had to sentence Jesus to death. Like, that poor guy, right? Um, We almost want to feel a little bit sorry for Pontius Pilate. But what C.S. Lewis says was, Pilate was happy to be merciful to Jesus in the trial, until it was really going to cost him something. And then you notice what he does. He washes his hands of him. I think there's some truth in that for us, right? Courage for us as believers is not necessarily being the loudest in the room, uh, not even necessarily having all the right words because the Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak. But I think it is, in moments of testing, our opportunity to simply clearly point people to Jesus and to his grace. You can be ordinary and unschooled and you can change the lives of the people in your, in your world. We can be ordinary and unschooled as a church and we can change a community and share grace with them. That's the joy in our text here today. That's what Peter and John had the ability to do. And it's what we get to leave with as well. There's no salvation under heaven other than Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now be courageous. Share that good news in your lives and let's do that in our community. Amen.